Oi, oi, streamers. Welcome to uh, the Crossing Streams podcast presented by the Bizzlecast here with Maddie G as always. It is the week, um, well, it's currently Saturday, uh, February 25th, so we are going to be talking about this past week's episodes of The Expanse, Legion, Supergirl, and possibly one or two others, depending on the time. Um, so, Matt, let's uh, dive right into it. Welcome back. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode six, uh, a.k.a. how about Crossing Streams Ashes after <laughs> the Expanse six book Babylon's Ashes. Absolutely. Another great episode of the Expanse uh, this past week, but we're not going to start there. So, Matt, why don't you take us into uh, episode six here? All right. So uh, first on the docket this week, uh, we got Legion. We are now at uh, that was chapter three this week, correct? Mm hmm. I believe there's only been three episodes. Mm-hmm. And. First thing I got to say about Legion is it was scary this it was. week. I, it was really I scary. I mean, even even if you don't like horror, and I mean you in general, not you specifically. No, no, I know what you mean. You got to give it up to a show for achieving that degree of just terror. I mean, my yeah. heart was pounding. I, you know, when the book closes on Melanie's hand at the end, uh, we'll get into all the specifics if we can, but there's a scene where he's she's looking at this child's book that gets creepier and creepier and it slams on her hand and breaks her hand in this mm-hmm. dream sequence. Yep. She's fine, but she feels the pain. I, I like jumped in my seat when you hear, you hear a dog whimpering and you think you're going to see a dog like mutilated or something. This mm-hmm. show has reached a point with its visuals where you believe any visual you might see, you could possibly see could show up on this show. And that's great for building terror because if you think you might see anything, you will naturally imagine like the scariest shit you can. Yeah, I um, want you to the, um, the last. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say I want I, I want you to jump into the plot and themes in this one. Uh, but I just want to echo what you said. Yeah, I'm not a big horror fan, but as we've talked about before, there's different kinds of horror, and this was not the slasher kind of horror or the you know torture porn yeah. type of horror. This was terror. And what makes it work for me is it was kind of darkly funny at points like the monster in the beginning was scary but also sort of funny um and i I like that you know that's 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 i mean the same way the reavers are kind of kind of funny in a bizarre way you know the way they look uh that works much better for me Uh, another great example for me is donnie darko one of my favorite movies the giant bunny rabbit the fact that it's ridiculous makes it more scary and so this this type of horror for sure worked for me i mean i wasn't jumping into my seat because i had the lights on and i was prepared for it but it was still it was still horrifying to watch at times yeah i I think the donnie darko rabbit is a lot goofier i i think the devil with the yellow eyes and the the angriest kid is what they're calling the other one with the you know with the the and the weird looking head i sometimes call him balloon face because his head is really swollen up and big or potato they are potato face yeah yeah um they are oddly humorous, but if you laugh looking at them, I think it's as much of a not sure how to react and laughing out of shock than than anything else. I, I think both are very well-designed characters that are quite menacing looking. Um, yeah, my, my, my only comparison with Donnie Darko is just, you know, the scene where they're in the movie theater and uh, he right he goes, you know, why are you wearing that stupid bunny suit? And then <laughs> Frank goes, why are you wearing that stupid band suit? 
I, I have that still image true. printed out, you know, as like something that I occasionally mm-hmm. will like hang up or just have around. And uh, and you have Jenna Malone asleep in the middle while this is all going on. And uh, right, I, it makes me smile and shudder every time I look at it. Honestly, and, and I, I again, you know, I haven't seen Stranger Things, but I, I for some reason felt like this was a Stranger Things type thing. I mean, I've seen one or two episodes, I think. Um, that it was sort of a relatable uh, type no, of No, the monster no. in Stranger Things is not goofy. Okay. Um, it doesn't, it's not funny looking at all. Um, you might not like the design when you finally watch it, but it's not, yeah, the Donnie Darko rabbit is definitely designed to make you laugh a little bit. And these ones are definitely designed to be so gross looking that yeah. you might laugh out of lack of idea of what else to do. Yeah, and um, I was not I was not laughing at the the slugs with his sister. I mean, you know, the slugs that burrow into you are, is a trope of sci-fi. They definitely visually uh, and just sort of the mechanics of it make it look a lot different. So why don't we start there, man? Why don't we start um, just thematically or, or, or um, structurally with the show in terms of the way it's pioneering kind of horror stuff that that both looks and acts different and and manifests differently and means different things because we're not really sure what's coming from his head and what's not right yeah and what's interesting about this show is one of the things i think it does so well and so uniquely is it isn't exactly a plot show like you want to get into the plot of this episode well there isn't exactly a plot. David's therapy continues, and Amy is interrogated slash mildly tortured for information that she doesn't really have about where he is. But there isn't a whole lot of stuff that happens. It's not like the pilot where he's in the hospital, and then he switches bodies with Sid, and Sid in David's body kills everybody. Which, by the way, was the best... The- but my, sorry, this was my favorite part of the episode, was their discussion of what it was like in each other's bodies. Oh, the conversations between them are wonderful. Those two, uh, Rachel Keller, I think is her name, and Dan Stevens, they have really good chemistry with each other. Um, And you can tell, even as they might be physically attracted to one another, that they do see each other as kindred souls in some way. Um, That idea of, I've been in so many other bodies and I'm still me, that's proof of a soul. That's a fascinating little bit of, of spirituality and uh, philosophy kind of superimposed. Mm-hmm. Um, but there isn't a lot that – there was a lot that goes on in that pilot episode. There's a battle with the mutants and the directive guys. There's none of that in this, and there wasn't really in episode two either. So it makes it challenging to talk about because we don't have the – we can't fall back on simply talking about the plot because there isn't that much. We can only talk about – the dream sequences and the therapeutic sessions because mm-hmm. that's all that there really is. I mean, Amy is basically in the same place as she was at the end of last episode. She's been captured. She's been hurt, although it doesn't seem like she's been crippled or anything. She seems for the most part still okay. Um, and David is going through more therapy. Um, and yeah. now I guess it ends with him in a coma, but you know, he's not going to be in a coma for the whole rest of the show. So, you know, that's just like a temporary setback. Yeah. I mean, professor X is constantly in and out of coma. So you knew that there were right. When you, when you're dealing with someone that's so powerful psychically, you know, that's, it's going to happen. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and the, Look, man, I completely agree with you. There's not a lot of plot. I'm still not completely into this show, but I will say, for a 59-minute show plus 30 minutes of commercials to DVR through, it goes pretty fast. Yeah. Um, And for me, at least, when it was over, I was like, this can't be the end. I have to know what happens next. I mean, 
Yeah, it was break. If, it was like a the, mid-season. It was almost like a mid-season Breaking Bad episode in that in that way. Yeah, right. But if you have that feeling at the end of a show, it means you're for the most part on board. I liked it before this episode, and now I think I'm hooked. You're like, really this was into my it. Yeah. Yeah, this was my favorite Legion episode of the first three by far, and I don't like to be scared, but I have to give props to a show that can get, you know, I've said before, anything you do that produces a really strong emotional reaction, whether it's fear, joy, hatred, whatever that emotion is, is a good thing, because most of what you experience will probably just kind of happen to you, and then you'll be done with it, and you won't remember it, but this was a memorable emotional reaction to a TV show. Um, and we should yeah. celebrate that when it happens. Absolutely. So, um, <clears throat> so, so we don't have a ton to talk about in terms of plot, as, as you said. And yeah, uh, Sid and um, Sid and uh, uh, David clearly have great chemistry. I mean, you really mm-hmm. buy that they're like a couple, even though they're not touching or kissing. And by the way. You know, it seems like a conceit on the surface, like, oh, let's build up the romantic tension by having them not able to touch each other, but it works amazingly. And, and yeah. X, X1 and X2, you know, how, I mean, how much dramatic mileage did they get out in the first couple X-Men movies because Rogue couldn't touch Bobby or anyone else in the, you know, her, her, her I mean, maybe the all-time great X-Men uh, scene is when Wolverine wakes up feverishly from a nightmare and quote-unquote kills rogue temporarily and then she has to touch him on the face you can do so much with it um so i mean she clearly is not just rogue obviously because there's a lot more going on with her and this is the question i wanted to ask you so the the young the pretty young uh lady uh whose name is carrie loudermilk in real life amber mid-thunder is she Mm -hmm. supposed to be she's walking through walls is she supposed to be like the kitty pride of the show and and by this i want to make a larger question in that should i just forget that this has anything to do with the x universe because so far I, i see no connections and i'm fine with it i'm just wondering if i should let go of any hope that there will be a connection at some point i think every once in a while they'll drop some kind of easter egg i mean in there's a scene in this past episode where he's in a room and there's a big red o on the wall and on the other side there's a window that's circular with the x in it and he's standing in front of it so that's pretty obvious foreshadowing of what this is or at least it's a reminder of what it is but yeah i i think Noah Hawley wanted to make a show about psychology. Um, The Watch, to reference another podcast, referred to it as subtext becoming the text of the show. Um, Now, one of them actually worked on the show, so they don't talk about it all that much, but that was one of their ideas for why the show is unique. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the less bogged down you can get in the X stuff that you already know and you know a lot – you will probably enjoy it more for now. You know Charles Xavier is going to show up eventually. Maybe not this season, but maybe next season, for instance. It's, or it's, maybe they'll at least say his name in the season finale. Right. It, um, it's not harming my enjoyment at all. I, it's just a purely philosophical thing where I almost wish it wasn't associated. I would enjoy the show more. But I will say, man... You know, I mean, they've only, for for the last couple of weeks they've only had Sid Barrett listed for four episodes. It seems unlikely they're going to kill her next episode. Uh, and before this week, Lenny was only listed for three episodes, and now she's listed for four episodes. So my guess is they're keeping this really tightly under wraps. And I wouldn't be yeah, surprised if Aubrey Plaza. I wouldn't be surprised if Aubrey Plaza, who by the way is doing the TV late night show rounds, so yep. I, I, it wouldn't shock me that she would end up being in all the episodes, and all these major characters will be in all the episodes, and they're just keeping it under wraps. Uh, right, and, and again, it, there's yeah. only eight total, so uh, which is kind yeah. of amazing that yeah. 
There's only five episodes left. Yeah, I just don't understand how IMDb works because from the beginning, Haller, right? So beginning from the beginning, Dave, uh, Dan Stevens, and Gene Smart were the only two listed as the full eight episodes. But it's mathematically impossible that everyone else is only four episodes, especially since they've all been in all three episodes so far, right? For most part. So I, and then in the Expanse, for example, you know, it lists um, uh, uh, what's Gunny's. Uh, um, uh, Gunny, Bobby the, the Marshall Marine. Yeah, I'm trying to remember her her real name. Um, you know, they, they they've listed her as being in you know all the new episodes, and right. indeed, we will get to the Expanse. Major, major spoiler, like Ned Stark level spoiler in the Expanse. So be warned, people. But yeah. Um, but uh, we, they're definitely switching to the Martian Marines for the next few episodes. And the, the writers have admitted that they're kind of pivoting. Um, and we'll talk about why that's the case um, when we get to the Expanse. Point being, you know, Bobby Draper is listed as being in episodes that she's not in. And I haven't been following the credits and the actual airing of it. So I don't know what the politics of IMDb is. Point being... It's possible there's a ton of mutants that we do know or are familiar that we're not even being told about yet, including Professor X. It could be. My hunch is it's more maybe like The Expanse doesn't release its cast notes for too many episodes in advance. And so people on IMDb are having to adjust the casting information as the episodes air. I believe the actors have authority over that. Okay, I don't know how IMDb works. The actors have authority because... For example, like, you know, people will put the fact that they're on tabletop as one of their credits, you know, like right. the, the, the actors either are putting little tiny things like that there or are approving or disapproving of it. Like you can actually sign up. There's IMDB Pro, which anyone can sign up for, which I'm signed up for. But then you can also sign up as like, you know, if you're part of the Screen Actors Guild, essentially. And so I don't know if it's the Wikipedia model. Um, I know this is a little esoteric discussion, but it's important because we do rely on IMDb for a lot of this stuff. Except I think we shouldn't because if you're looking up how many episodes a character is in, you're going to spoil unintentionally something because if you know a person is only in four episodes and you know you've seen them in three – you either know they're going to die soon or they're going to be not in a bunch of episodes. Right. It, it, that, this is my whole point, man. And this is why I'm praising the series and praising the overall trend of TV shows in particular and even movies keeping this stuff pretty close to the vest right. and, and only releasing information as we know it. I, I, I'm, I'm saying I'm happy with that with Legion because I was really sad that there was going to be no more Aubrey Plaza. And I would mm-hmm. be sad if there wasn't more uh, you know, uh, Rachel Keller going on after next week. So I'm saying the fact that there is a surprise element still here about who's going to be on for how long and when and people we don't even know about is making it way more exciting for me as it goes along as well as just sort of the you know unraveling mystery and so forth um and uh you know this show took a step for me in a good direction in terms of it's not just insanity imagery it's starting to come into focus about why we're seeing all this insanity imagery you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like the early scene where they're revisiting this one moment in the kitchen and trying to wind it back and uh oh let's talk about that man okay so the guy with the yellow eyes shows up in a simulation of his memory and the other people don't see it and then i I assume it's the guy in the yellow yeah and i assume it's the guy in the yellow eyes that sort of blocks them from transitioning and then david has to try really hard to transition he ends up teleporting them as well as bringing them back into the present right he teleports them into like 30 feet away or something yeah yeah, the devil with the yellow eyes is clearly some other kind of personality that's able to block. Could be that it's actually, it turns out it's actually a good power in that it, pro- it protects him 
from telepathic attack. But yeah, when others intrude, the problem is he sees it when nobody else is around too. So that's bad. But when other people seem to come into his memories, it perceives them as intruders and it, it it moves to block them when they go into his dream at the end and Sid can see it, you know, that red gash that opens in the wall and that hand that comes out, that's clearly his hand, that deformed blobby hand. So he shows up when other people are trying to access David's past. Um, Yeah. And X-Men always does this well. I mean, right. One of the cooler parts of, of uh, X-Men First Class was the dueling telepathies of Emma Frost and Professor X, for example. Yeah. Um, was really awesome. Obviously, you know, Professor X and Jean Grey's relationship in both the movies and the books. Um, oh, this was a thought I had, man, was thought experiment. What if they had done this same show, but it w- wouldn't? It would have been about Jean Grey instead of Legion. It would have been a young female Jean Grey versus uh, Legion. I, I certainly think that could work, but I think getting away from pre-existing stuff. You don't have to call her Jean Grey. You don't have to call her Jean Grey. I'm just saying a young woman as opposed to a young man and, you know, her background and powers being somewhat based off of, off of Jean Grey. Um, mean, I guess what, uh, another way of phrasing this is, as a question for you, uh, it seems intentional they picked a very, very obscure character, like way more obscure than Deadpool. Yes. Absolutely. Intentionally, um, yeah. You know, I'm just very, saying young very woman minimal they cool. have to be. A young woman would have been cool, but that's fine. A young woman could have worked, although your dad probably could answer this question better. I wonder, schizophrenia might be one of those diseases that actually affects men disproportionately. I certainly, most of the stories I've ever heard about people who are schizophrenic, Mm -hmm. like this kind, in almost all these stories, I've heard they're men. Now, that doesn't mean that they make up the majority of people afflicted with it. I could be just... The sample size I have is skewed that way, but I wonder if there is something actually less realistic about a woman with severe paranoid schizophrenia. Or which is which is interesting because the old-fashioned mentality was that women were way more susceptible to depression and anxiety, and then right. researchers came to the obvious conclusion That's why it's that called it was hysteria. Right, exactly. But researchers came eventually to the obvious conclusion that it was just being reported much more highly with women because women. Hey, let's be honest. Sorry, guys. Women can talk about their feelings much easier than we can. And so uh, men, are, men hold it in a lot more. And so if you adjust for that, that, uh, that variable, it's pretty evenly dispersed. Now, that's depression and anxiety. Paranoid schizophrenia or other kinds of schizophrenia is, is very extreme. That is interesting. You don't hear about schizophrenic women a lot. It's possible, too, man, that because men also have the aggression instinct, that you right. combine schizophrenia and aggression, and therefore it just is more... Um, physically and dangerously manifested perhaps but yeah let me ask papa b about that it's a great question he'll he'll be listening to this and hopefully i'll get a text <laughs> when when he hears it so um yeah man that's the thing uh, this is this is a show i really i'm not sure if i love but i i've totally been enjoying watching and you know if, if i try and like fiddle during the show and like check my phone i find myself not doing it i find myself watching the whole show and yeah i find myself thinking that it doesn't feel like an hour and a half of tv time as opposed to an hour I would certainly say that uh, for the last – so the episode is basically a series of dream sequences. One involves going into trying to figure out the scene where he's in his kitchen with his ex-girlfriend and he goes crazy. And then the the devil with the yellow eyes kicks them out of that memory. Mm -hmm. Then he is getting MRI scanned again and he 
sort of astral projects, for lack of a better word, him yep. and Sid into uh, the interrogation room where Amy is being held. And then the guy with the eye, Walter, um, sees them and they have to flee. And then it, they reappear corporeally in the lake in front of the school. And then they go into his last memory, which I can't remember if it's the Halloween one or the bedtime one, but they go into another memory and the devil with the yellow eyes attacks and traps them there. And then baby, like child, like David and Sid run away. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's the really scary one. And I definitely was not looking at my phone through that in no. part because I was afraid that if I moved, something was going to reach out from under my couch and grab my leg. And I was yeah. just going to freak the hell out. Yeah. This um, isn't the it's CW really some of the most frightening yeah. TV I've ever seen. And Absolutely. Maybe the most since the first couple of episodes of the first season of American horror story, which was scary for the same reason in that it's this jumbled assortment of almost nonsensical, terrifying elements. Mm -hmm. And this idea of it's hard to explain what this is. It's just frightening Mm -hmm. is what amps the terror. And one thing I think um, a lot of people who have paranoid schizophrenia have described it as a very scary experience you know, there are stories of people who hear voices coming from the TV and they punch or run into the TV. They have to destroy it because, one, the voices are telling them to do bad things and because it's frightening. So yeah. to capture the fear of the condition itself uh, is very, very effective. And another way in which I feel like this show is honest about mental illness, even if being a mutant is the stand in for it, even if, as the show points out, he isn't actually schizophrenic schizophrenic he just has powers that manifest that way but it still resonates with the real experience of having schizophrenia for some and and, and that to me is the obvious donnie darko connection where there's a reason why he's schizophrenic and by the way donnie darko is one of those movies even if you're not watching the director's cut which has more content you're just watching the original um you know he sees that that middle-aged therapist lady and she's really trying to treat him but then towards the very end he reveals to her that a magic rabbit, uh, uh, you know, scary bunny is talking to him and telling him to commit crimes. And her response is, you can stop taking your meds now. Uh, and that's the one of the first times in the movie you're going, uh, there's a greater power working here. And I, I, I interpreted it as your meds are making your symptoms worse. I yeah, mean, I, I've actually re- I, I've actually read about this, so that's not yeah. It, it's it's that it, it, essentially what happens is the um, the forces that are are moving Donnie Darko to make a series of decisions decisions over yeah. those twenty nine days or whatever. It starts bleeding over into the other characters without them re- uh, realizing it. This one is different in that it is everything is emanating from his brain. Like in Donnie Darko, you could totally tell when he was hallucinating and when he wasn't. Here, it's, right. it's never you're never quite sure, um, and so I, I wanted to compare, but also contrast the two in, in terms of that. And it, it'll be interesting to see if he gets to a point of clarity where both he and the audience knows most of the time, um, you know, when when things are real and when it's not. And the fact that you're not sure when, even when they're in the dreams, whether the dreams are real within the dreams is a very cool concept. Yeah, I, I think that that is how the show would ultimately resolve whatever season you know it goes. Is it won't be the resolution of the minimal plot that there is. It would be the resolution of his psychological development to achieve 
lucidity to achieve wholeness to achieve you know the ability to live with what he's got and to be able to control it not to fight fight crime or stop government anti-mutant agents but just to be whole and it's another way in which the subtext the psychology of the show is really what's driving it not the narrative uh regarding donnie darko i was just going to say Donnie Darko is ultimately about philosophy, which is probably why I didn't quite respond to it all that well, because, sorry, that's just not something I think I look for in movies ever. When it's, when it, it appeal, when it's good, I, I like it. You know, I like the philosophy in The Matrix a lot, but right. Donnie well, Darko just didn't do it for me. It's also, well, let me just have to interrupt. It's also a, a bizarre tale of coming-of-age story. It's also a twisted superhero story. It's also a critique of the Reagan days of the 80s and the conservatism back then and so forth. There's, right. a lot go- there's a lot going on there. There is a lot of philosophy. And like if you don't like that stuff, then you should definitely not watch the director's cut because that just adds more philosophy. Yeah, but- the, there's a lot of scenes of just talking about you know action, whether or not you have fate or free will, or are you on this path that you have in, in, to In the director's cut, that's true. But if you rewatch just the original, the, they actually I've go only ever seen the original, and those conversations are the ones I remember the most. I think it's a well-done movie. Um, I think it's a messianic complex movie more than a superhero movie. This idea that he's fated to do something to save. Yeah, I think it's ironic. I think it's ironic in it, but that's my point only is that Legion is not as much about philosophy. It's much more about psychology, which is a subject matter that interests me way, way, way more. Um, So maybe that's just why I respond to this in a way. I think you're ignoring some messianic overtones at Legion, but that's fine. Oh, well, sure. I mean, all superhero stuff. Superman is a Christ story as much as an immigrant story. So this was was also the first episode, Ben, where they verbally said over and over again, like, you have special powers and you're meant for something and and so forth, which is a very X-Men thing. I'm fine with it. That's not a criticism of it. I'm just saying I think the two properties are are more similar than you're saying. But the fact that you're responding to one more than another is fine. And again, this goes back to the movie TV discussion, which we don't need to rehash that, you know, things like this seem to seem to work for you better in, in TV shows and t- tend to work better for me in movies. So why don't we move on, um, okay. if you're cool. Um, and uh, uh, we're going to talk about The Expanse. And talk about, uh, so you, you talked about how the, the, the season of Legion is going to sort of resolve, not plot-wise, but with him sort of taking the next step in his, in his development. I think mm-hmm. that's clearly the case with season two of The Expanse. And uh, I have to say... Um, you know, I don't know if it's just because I was at one point watching season two and season one of The Expanse at the same time, but by the time I got to the final three episodes of season one of The Expanse, I th- already thought it had taken a big jump. Most of the cr- critiques that I sent you um, are just sort of the reviews of the most recent episode, which we're going to talk to, called Home, season two, episode right. five. Amazing episode. One of the best, if not the mm-hmm. best. But um, I really thought that, that Expanse did take off in the last two or three episodes. Once, once uh, Thomas Jane, as Joe Miller's story, was set in motion... And the mm-hmm. main plot launched, and the crew was sort of coming together and getting over their like various secrets and paranoias and so forth. Um, I, I, it, it was very similar to at the end of season one of Battlestar, uh, Cobalt's last gleaming part one and two, where that's really where the Battlestar universe takes off. 
um, for the first is time. Is that the like, one where they get the arrow and they see the constellations and that's how they figure out where no, Earth is? No, well, go, no, Cobalt's Last Gleaming launches the eight to nine episode arc where, wherein all of that happens. It starts oh, okay. by... Um, it starts by Rosalind having the vision of Cobol and the snakes and everything. And that's when they right. send that down to the planet in that amazing crash landing sequence, which still looks incredible with the Raptor cl- the crashes. And, and there's, the, you know, there's a multiple episode arc beginning of season two where they're just fighting. And it's almost like a war movie on the planet. They're all getting mowed down by the Cylons. And then, yeah, Starbuck disobeys order. It takes a Cylon ship, blah, blah, blah. The point being, in terms of just like uh, just the, the suspense and the quality of the writing and, and the world building and great, greater universe... Um, also, mm-hmm. uh, Cobol's Gleaming Part One starts with the the Allegro, um, the Bear McCreary's right. maybe best uh, composition. Which I wanted to bring up the Allegro because the classical music at the end of this Expanse episode reminded me of the Allegro. Not in terms of copying the music, but in terms of uh, instead of going, um, well, we'll get to it. Um, just just bookmark the music at the end of this episode of the Expanse, and you have uh, at Cobol's last Gleaming in the beginning. You've got Baltar sleeping with Starbuck, but you think Starbuck's sleeping with Apollo, and Apollo's fighting his dad and getting his ass kicked boxing against Eddie almost and you know it's it, the allegro is a is a sp- type of um classical music uh rhythmic structure where it's like a waltz but it's in four but you still feel like you're kind of twirling around and around and around it's very beautiful but very dissociating um and so why don't we okay. work backwards from the expanse episode so spoiler alert people i mean we're always spoilers but this is super spoilers thomas jane dies at least for now joe miller's character finally getting to see and kiss his love uh, Julie Ma which we're still not 100% sure why he's so obsessed with her she's become essentially the hybrid of, of the Eros asteroid or as Matt pointed out um, one of the precogs I mean aesthetically it's more like a precog because the hybrids stole the hybrids from Battlestar stole straight up the precog I mean even the even the girl that plays the hi- hybrid in Battlestar looks exactly like Agatha from, from uh, the precogs and Minority yeah. Report and they have this slowly building string music, but it's not the cheesy string music. It's this beautiful piece of classical music composition as you know he admits his feelings for her and he sort of gently and lovingly convinces her to not destroy earth um absolutely beautiful actually matt you you wrote a beautiful email to me about the both the aesthetics and um and just sort of the uh character uh interplay in, in that final part of this episode of the expanse i i, I just talked for a bunch I want, I want you to talk about it because you it was very poetic what you wrote to me yeah, so I'm almost just going to read it verbatim. Yeah, go. The imagery inside Eros Station with the protomolecule having infested and, and just taken over everything, straight up, it's some of the most beautiful CGI I've ever seen in a TV show. And it's up there with some of the best and CGI of that style in movies. I mean, I... I <laughs> Nobody else likes Avatar as much as I do. I understand this and ex- and accept no, this, but this I do good, think this is a visual- good comparison. This is a very yeah, good comparison. Yeah, I, I think you know the visual style of Avatar and the visual appeal of it. I think is undeniable. I think what people don't like about it is everything else about it, and all of those other things that they don't like totally valid to not like it for that reason. Um, but that look when you when you come into when you step onto pandora for the first time at night and you see all the fluorescence and you see the wonder of it and you see sam worthington's character experience the wonder of it at the same time as he sort of just stops and look around that feeling that i got in that moment is the feeling i got on this euro station um with this similar color scheme blue and white instead of blue and green but very fluorescent very 
sort of internally illuminated and just all of the different things the the molecules they're floating in the air like fireflies there's like a hand and an arm that aren't Julie's being like constructed in midair from the particles. There is a blue bird flying around in a station that's supposed to have zero G. Um, and it's one, it's obviously a blue Falcon and they find her in the hotel room where she died of the blue Falcon hotel. Mm. But apparently there's also some symbolism where he sees birds in previous seasons. I don't remember that, but Mm -hmm. I was reading one of the stories you sent me and there's definitely a callback to that image, Mm -hmm. but it's just this sense of wonder and amazement and and otherworldliness of the scenes in the proto uh, molecule infected station. It's just stunning. And anything else to say about the episode is pales in comparison to how just gorgeous the last half of this episode was. Yeah, um, the only the visually other than Avatar, it was a little Groot Groot like from the end of Guardians <clears throat> with the the wispiness. Uh, it just aesthetically is the only thing you know, and he's covering them up and the the the, the uh, firefly oh, sure. type that things. final yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and just with the music and the sacrifice, uh, obviously this was way more <laughs> you know um, serious and, and and you know adult and deep. Th- this particular scene. Um, and well, again, it's not played for you know, laughs. no, it's not played for laughs. Well, neither is the Groot sacrifice. Actually, it, that's when Rocket starts crying. No, but every time I, I Groot opens crying. his mouth, it's kind of yeah. funny. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm just specifically talking about at the end when he surrounds them and and the little fireflies come out. But I, I will say, man, and, and I've said this before, the relationship uh, between Miller and Julie is sold completely through performance, and so it continues mm-hmm. to work for me. And it's funny because I read a shit ton of I, I I don't read a lot of recaps usually, but this was like Red Wedding episode with Game of Thrones. Like you have to read like what the producers say and what the actors say. You yep. know when they found out about mm-hmm. it. Um, you can address the everyone. And again, this isn't me, and I'm not going to make a judgment one or the other. But a lot of people are throwing around this is the Game of Thrones in space thing. Um, but especially after this episode, I, I, I don't find that to be the case. Um, but uh, I, I would say, I mean like it is almost cooler that we don't know and hearing the producers admit the fact that it is a tenuous link i don't know if you agree with this the fact that the producer admit that it's a tenuous link between thomas jane uh character miller and and julie mal almost makes it cooler in some way right it's like a bizarre weird obsession yeah i one of the reviews you sent me made the point that julie is so freaked out when she sort of sees miller because she I think that's like the first moment she regained some sense of her own self-awareness. You know, up until then she was just sort of this free floating thing, mostly buoyed by the work of the molecule itself. And now she's back and she doesn't understand what's going on and she doesn't know Miller. They never met. Um, But she's just happy to see a human who is like going to talk to her like a person and be nice to her and not, Mm -hmm try to add additional stress to what must be an incredibly emotionally distressing situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it, it works because she is for him, this sort of point of obsession. I think she represents something that he lost along the way. I'm not exactly sure what, but I think there is this sense of if I could find her, if I could save her, I could be made whole or something like that i mean finding her was the only reason he was on he existed basically in the first season and then he for her is a source of comfort and 
a tenuous link back to her own humanity that she clearly has given up because she's been taken over by this proto-molecule to the point that it, it looks like her body is mostly proto-molecule. Um, so I, my only theory about this, and I, I think this is totally mm-hmm. wrong, and I will say they openly said in this show, this, this is breaking the laws of physics, and then some of the reviews right. commented on the fact I think that was unnecessary. There's a million ways you could explain how the asteroid moved without actually breaking the laws of physics. They, all, they were only breaking the laws of what they understand about physics. Maybe that was implied. I don't know. So that was that was an unnecessary thing for them to both do and admit. Uh, but um, the, the reason I'm bringing that up is because my only explanation, because if you think about it, you're going, okay, why is Julie the hybrid? So there's a couple possibilities. Right. Maybe there are multiple hybrids plugged in, you know, controlling the thing. She was the first, right? I think, or one of the first. Yeah, on she the was station. the first. I think that's why why that's the case. Or or she has some sort of psychic stuff going on, and that's why they chose her because she could control the rest of it. And that's maybe there is a psychic link with Miller, and that's what's going on. Now that's only going to be a possibility if we find out more about the backstory. And now we've, we've already seen flashbacks with Julie Mao. Um, it like objective third person flashbacks of Julie Mao that, that the right. crew don't even know about. So it's possible we well, the see the show her begins. Again. The pilot of the of the first season is her. She's yeah. the opening scene. Is her yeah. seeing the proto molecule before yeah. we know who she is or what it is. She comes out of cryogenic stasis or something, and she floats around, and then she goes in this room, and there's all this blue shit going on and then it attacks her and that's the le- the first thing we see before even the title credits um, so so all right so i'm gonna throw out a, a couple lines of thought here and then you can run with it in terms of uh yep. the rest of the season and by the way people i was wrong this season is 13 episodes not 10 yes so we're not even halfway through the ep- this season i'm so happy about that's that's a big difference it really is 13 verse 10 oh, i yeah. think um you know 13 is more than half of a, of a normal tv syndicated type show um and especially since they're only 42 minutes a piece, uh, you know, that, that's an extra movie's worth of, of content. And maybe they'll decide to go that route. They'll probably do a two-parter again to end the, uh, to end the season. Um, but uh, I will say, comparing it to Game of Thrones, and I love season one of Game of Thrones, and I really like season two of Game of Thrones. I was so sad to see Sean Bean go, and I'm sad to see Thomas Jane go here. Um, and so, in some ways, I want him to stay dead because it will lose its... Uh, gravity, gravity, gravitas. Uh, should he come mm-hmm. back? A- any other? I mean, now it's possible he mutates into something, right? I mean, Venus, you're not supposed to survive, but in his current state, it's right. possible him and Julie merge, or something else goes on, or he becomes part of the protovirus. They're talking about as if he's dead, but to be fair, you know, Ron Moore and Katie Sackhoff are like the only people who knew that Katie Sackhoff wasn't dead. I mean, including the cast, who was like really upset about it. So this could be a, a giant shell game here uh throwing us off off the trail um the -hmm. only the the one reason i think that's not the case is they've stuck pretty close to the book so far the one thing we should say is that they've admitted that now we finished leviathan wakes which you know that was a decision they sort of made during the first season was we don't want to rush through leviathan wakes we can make it work so that the first book ends mid-season two and now we start on caliban what's it called 
Caliban's War, I think. Caliban's War. So the only thing I don't want to happen is to start killing off all the main characters right away. But I, I'm, you, you, you are, uh, I don't want to just pick on one show. You are into a number of shows where they kill off main characters fairly regularly. So I, I'd be curious mm-hmm. to hear, A, what you thought about Thomas Jane being killed off, and B, wh- whether you think uh, this is something we should kind of be prepared for and, and getting used to. Not that there's a ton of characters that we care a ton about, but you know what I mean? Um, first thing I wanted to say is I think one of the big differences between Game of Thrones and Expanse, and I do, I do understand where the similarities are being drawn, but Game of Thrones is ultimately about a number of different forces working against one another. You have yes. the Starks versus the Lannisters. You have yep. the Baratheons against this. You have the, the Watch against the Walkers. You have the Targaryens in, on the Eastern Continent plotting to go to uh westeros and regain that throne and then finally this past season has seen some of these forces begin to finally ally in for what will ultimately be basically a one big war which i'm pretty sure will be a lot of the last season and then somebody will take the iron throne and unite everything and that'll be the end of it i'm Um, just curious how he got six expanse books out of all this you know because it looks like they're headed towards a conclusion already but there's like five more books to go go ahead yeah here there is conflicting forces that are set up and there still are, but it more seems like everybody, whether they know it or not, are working on the, towards the same goal, mm-hmm. even if they are not quite sure what that goal is. And this show, this season, everybody is finally together in one narrative, which I think is what's helping it. You have Fred Johnson and Christian are allied with each other, whether or not yeah. they officially know it or not. They're clearly working together. Miller has been with Holden and his and the Rosinanti for the whole season so far. And I think having all the storylines come together was the smartest decision they've made for season two. Um, which we predicted, as for by the Miller's way. Fate, which we, sorry, which you and I have been building to this the whole season, that right. we, we thought this was a major strength, that people weren't just keeping secrets from each other, that these characters in far-flung parts of the solar system were coming together. Go ahead. Right, because they were going to realize there were external threats that yep. were more important than whatever their back mm-hmm. backstory is. Um, regarding what's coming, at the end of last season, which I liked but didn't love and wasn't really emotionally invested in, I kind of Wikipedia'd some of the plots of the later books. Uh-oh. I don't remember much, but I know a couple of broad stroke details, and I don't want to share them. So I actually am okay. going to decline to comment on whether or not Miller is dead or not. I think the sacrifice worked. I think the show's idea that the proto molecule absorbs your consciousness is it's good that they got, they needed to set that up now because I think that is going to be a recurring theme, including just the idea that if this molecule is the way by which humanity at, at mass can, can evolve to survive in space. Well, one way it could do that is, if it explores your consciousness and then can survive in zero G, mm-hmm. we all just become proto molecule creatures. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know that that's what's going to happen. I, that's one thought that I have is the ultimate evolution. You know, they've said that if we had full control of our brains, we would just be, we'd be non corporeal. We would just be energy beings. Now that's, that's all turned out to be BS, but we have full control of our brains. We just don't use all of it for conscious thought. Um, well, no, but th- right, and this goes back to my sci- you know psychic possibility because I I don't think they do resolve that. I mean, Julie Mount is clearly dead when we see her a few episodes back. 
So something happened to her brain, right? They, 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 I mean, I think the molecule has as psychic abilities or it can communicate in ways we don't understand. Um, Right. And it is doing all of the work. I think Julie died, but what was left of her conscious infected this molecule or the molecule absorbed it or whatever. I'm not quite so down with the idea that she's psychic, Uh you know, independently of this thing, because if she is, that just introduces a whole other element into this world that I don't think it needs. I think it would overly bog it down. They introduced psychics on dark matter and it just made the whole thing more confusing. Uh Um, I think when you start getting into powers on top of science fiction, it can become too much. And I think Uh they've taken a little bit more of a stripped down approach, which I've liked. Um, It's, it's possible. Again, you've read up on this, so you don't have to say yeah or yeah, nay. Yeah, but I only remember maybe two key details. I'm not going to say what yeah. they are, and it, it's not whether or not anybody has psychic abilities. So, you know, it's possible that another spoiler here on a movie, people arrival. It's possible that um, the proto molecule is existing in fourth or, or fifth dimensional space, whatever you want to call It'll it, and that, and that would be the way that, like, Thomas Jane has a premonition that he would fall for Julie Mao and it happens in the future, but he's experiencing it as happening in the past and or present um, would be really cool. That That's the way to do time travel. The way to do yeah. time travel is, and I will give it to arrival. Um, and, and I think this works in interstellar as well. The way to do time travel is not to physically be moving to the past or the, or the future, like back to the future style, but to, tap into the fourth or fifth or other dimensions and, and experience it that way even if you don't know you're experiencing it so i'd be cool if that was in the show i would be cool if it's not i think it's more we know this proto molecule can do things it can create propulsion when it needs to it can yeah, take cool. a station off radar i don't even know how you do that so if a protomolecule can do all of those things, it would seem to me possible that it could communicate across long distances. Um, you know, so I, I think creating an all-powerful po- alien thing, that's fine. I mean, I think time travel is a step too far, again, like psychic stuff, but yep. almost anything up until that point, I'd be willing. So it may more be that it's communicating with other molecules and wherever it originated from. Yeah. Um, like yeah. there's evidence that I think atoms or molecules, if you spin, if you separate them and spin it, w- the one on the other like distance away will also spin. I think electrons work that way or something. Yes. And it doesn't matter if there's physical distance between them. So yeah. it could be all the proto molecule bits are part of one entity that can communicate within itself over any distance of actual time. Yeah. Maybe because it can create subspace or tesseract space or something like that. Yes. And so. Exactly. distance d- spatial distance doesn't actually exist for this molecule uh-huh. if that's the case i think they're going to explain that outright um you know i think they've been pretty good with the science i love the idea of the acceleration killing them you know that you know that if you go awesome. to warp not that they can go to warp but in reality that much speed would break your body in half so yeah yeah it's not clear why when arrows stop spinning gravity disappears but they have gravity on the ship um, right because they're accelerating and it's creating a force no, against I just mean, I just basically against the chairs they're in and that and then it if you go too fast it just compresses all your organs and kills you wait but do they they don't normally have complete zero g on the ship even when they're just moving normally do they uh, i don't 
No. I mean, it seems like they walk around they on the Rosinante, so they're able to generate some gravity, but Alex is saying at one point they're yeah. going to they're going like 15G. Yes. I think Which jet fighters go 7G or, or maybe yeah. less, and blacking out is a real concern for yeah. jet plane, uh, for fighter plane pilots. It's one of the biggest problems they face. Yeah. Um, they, so they 15G would really fuck you up. They do say in Battlestar, and we know that you know they based Battlestar ships on on, on real uh, fighter planes, and that you know some of the yep. headliners yeah, 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 have the, been in the, the Raptors Force. and Vipers. yeah. So they there's the episode where Starbucks trying to recover, and she's working with the weights, and they have a conversation about pulling G's. And I think they say like the hardest pull on a on a uh, uh, Viper is like seven or eight G's. So this is twice that. Okay. And by the way, how cool was it that that Kabbalah like, pumped them full of meds to keep pushing the G's was great. Yep. Something they established in season one. Yeah. You know, that's an obvious tech is, I don't know what it does. It maybe it's some kind of anti-constrictor, yep. you know, cause he said the risk is that like a blood vessel pops in your brain and you exactly. stroke out and die. So, Something that can keep your that can buffer your your veins and arteries and whatever right. from some of the g pressure. So maybe that would it's be a useful thing their, to develop yeah. if we were gonna um, if we were going to go into space for sure. And that would seem like something you could do. Um, that would seem like a scientifically plausible concept, more than like a warp field that lets you go yeah. the speed of light raised to the power of eight or something like that. Yep, uh, and so. This will be my final thoughts. We can move on here. Another fucking good episode. I mean, season two is clearly a jump from season one in this show. Yeah. Oh, um, my God. I, I yeah. can't think of a show that's gotten this much better from two to one. I, I really can't. One um, to two. Yeah. Yeah. One um, to two. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'll say, man, you know, all the complaints I've made to you, not complaints, but all, all the criticisms or critiques I've made to you over the past year and a half or so that we've been podcasting together about reading hard science fiction. This is such a, a more pleasurable experience. You know, right. usually I'm the guy that says, oh, the book was better, you know, type thing. Um, and it's possible the Expanse book is that it's good or better, but they are really doing what what's actually hard science fiction. Because what happens in books, because you don't have budgets and, and you can just use your imagination, is you can set something 5,000 years from now. But just because there's a lot of tech and science talk doesn't make it hard science fiction to me. To me, hard science fiction is either like The Martian or like something like this. It's something that we can grasp and explain, even if the technology is a little bit advanced, right? That makes sense. And when it doesn't make sense, they talk about in the show that it doesn't make sense, um, like with the movement of the asteroid. And I just wanted to add as my final thought, and you can you can say more if you want, but my final thought is <clears throat> to respond to what you said earlier. Yeah, th- there's a you know there's definitely a possibility of quantum physics stuff going on here because we do know in quantum physics that particles. Um, subparticles are going in and out of existence seemingly randomly um, in both time and space. And the only way to explain that is that the, the, the particles could be time traveling, essentially, or what we would consider time traveling. So, you know, that, that because otherwise the law of conservation of matter and energy wouldn't apply. Right, you can't right. have matter and energy created or destroyed. You can only have it tran- tran- you know, mutate or transmutate. Um, and so, you know, that would be that would be something that could be happening in some quantum physics stuff, which I'm excited about. And if not, then you know, they're setting up new stories. I'm I'm excited to see the Martian Marines. I don't know if they'll be as gripping as the characters so far, but I I do think some straight up space warfare uh, will will be well received by both myself and the audience. Uh, so you go ahead, buddy, or you can transition us. Well, I think that definitely is what we're getting next episode. I know the Martians are coming back. It seems like there is a battle coming. 
Um, and after an episode of just sort of ambiance and mood and emotion, uh, a break from all of that for a shoot 'em up. One, I think that's generally that's a good way to or- order a, a series of television, a season. Um, but I, I think it, it's a good palate cleanser. Um, and I think if Bobby Draper and her friends are going to be real characters, they need to start getting some real estate. So it's time that they get an episode where they actually get to do something. Cause for now, all they've been doing is sitting around. They talk a little bit, right. but they don't go, they don't get to fight anything. They train a little bit. They're just sort of sitting and waiting. If you're going to introduce these characters, you need to let them loose. And I think we're going to see them let loose. And if they sink, they suck that's fine but it, this is their chance to to sink or swim basically um absolutely and uh i also just wanted to mention that i agree with you i love the the uh mature relationship between uh christian and, uh, and arjun um yeah bet- between um uh brian george who by the way is an indian jew from uh israel um, oh, cool! And Christian, uh, who's who's Persian, um, Agdashlu. Sharia Agdashlu, yeah, yeah, he's Persian. And by the way, they are both voices in all the Mass Effect games. A small world. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I knew that about Agdashlu. I actually didn't know about Brian George until I started researching him. But that was the fact that they kept talking over to each other, uh, over each other on the time delay. I mean, that's like the most anti-Star Trek thing ever, and in the best way. You know, it's like they're actually dealing with the physics of communication from the moon to mm-hmm. Earth. I thought that was. Really really it was it made it more touching right because they both had so much to say to each other that they kept interrupting one another i thought was very sweet so speaking of very sweet let's go to the uh supergirl episode uh valentine's day episode you're gonna have a ton to say here so i'm just gonna let you go i'm just gonna say as i texted you last night even with some cheesiness you know like for the valentine's day episode first of all it was way less cheesy than i was expecting the valentine's day episode to be and that's partially because of mr which you'll you'll help us pronounce (laughs) um but even like the side storyline of um of alex and and her girlfriend uh you know although was again a a cw move of like creating a false tension that that could have been handled otherwise but because of the actresses and because it was relative a small part of the episode did not bother me at all. So, uh, so why don't you give us a quick summation of the episode uh, and, and what you thought about it? Yeah. So, Mister and Mrs. Mixus Spitlick, to use the way they pronounce it, I always pronounced it Mixies Patelic, but I'll go with their spell, their well, pronunciation. That's fine. Mixus Spitlick has Spitlick in it, and that just sounds weird. But yeah, I like yours I better. Mean, yeah. Whatever. I, one of the things I loved about the episode is how often somebody says the word Mixus Spitlick and doesn't break out laughing. Like they all are saying this bizarre ass name, and it's just totally run of the mill. It's like, yeah, sure. There's a five-dimensional imp named Mixa Spitlick running around. That's totally normal. Um, this is really one of my favorite episodes. This was the funniest episode since The Flash showed up in season one, and maybe it was actually the funniest episode there's been. Um, I thought Peter Gadiot as Mixa Spitlick was amazing. I thought he was so over the top and he so got the character where did he um, come from he has almost no credits on imdb i was yeah, trying to research this the best thing he's known for is playing a, a genie on one of the once upon a time spin-offs mm-hmm. so that might explain kind of where he gets his grandstandingness from a little bit uh but I, this episode it was just so goofy and so lighthearted. Even the occasional threats he makes you never really take them seriously you don't think he's really going to split the world in half 
he doesn't even really seem to be killing anybody. Like when he makes the parasite appear, he doesn't, the parasite doesn't kill anyone. He just breaks a few cars and then he shows up and gets rid of him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought, you know, this episode was hilarious and there's been a lot of meat to Supergirl episodes and I was okay to have an episode that was a little on the lighter side mm-hmm. um, in terms of emotional content. You know, you're right. There's this side story with Alex and Maggie, but it could be summarized in two sentences. Alex and Maggie don't celebrate Valentine's Day. Then they celebrate Valentine's Day. That's it. There's and, not some huge fight. They don't yeah. take a you know break up or anything. It's just this bugs me. Okay, and, forty five minutes later, eh, let's do it anyway. Yeah, and because the the scenario about being shamed by your own parents for being gay, I I, I not only can't criticize it but applaud it. I, I believe. I mean, she grew up in. She says in one episode she grew up in the Midwest, like Iowa or Kansas or something. Yeah. So yeah, I can completely buy that scenario yeah and she's what's her ethnicity does she have an ethnicity she looks like she has an ethnicity she said it was really hard growing up being non-white and not straight mm-hmm. i don't know what her ethnicity exactly is supposed to be i i mean if you want to look the actress up and see where she comes from i mean she could just um, be italian as, you know or something like she that could be and possible. just have slightly yeah. darker skin you know i mean to yeah. me she looks like a partial Hispanic. Yeah. But I could be completely wrong about that. I, I don't really know. Um, but she's, yeah, yeah, she's, she's dating. Poor, she's, she's, uh, she's yeah. non-white. I mean, she makes that mm-hmm. really clear. Um, she, um, she was dating Casey Affleck too, apparently, which is interesting. There um, you go. I, I wish her the best. <laughs> He's a bit of a Yeah. We, I listen oh, you to, listen to my podcast. podcast so uh, well, we, I know you, we listen, all know you listen to everything, but it's not, it's possible. Not everyone listens to sure. look people. I like Casey Affleck as an actor. I just want to stress not to get to, t- to attach to your favorite actors or consider them role models because many of them are troubled and I, and I root for all of them to be happy and untroubled. So, um, that's cool. So yeah, she's, uh, and she is from the, she's from Cincinnati, which is about as Midwest as you can get. I mean, Cincinnati's basically her Kentucky. character or her act. Or no, her the, actual life. So it's like oh, the actresses. Yeah, Fior Floriana Lima. Okay. Um, so uh, she's really good. I mean, she's so pretty. It, it, it can be distracting, but she has great chemistry with uh, with Alex. Um, so I like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you told me that that Mixie was a little bit like Q, and he, I mean, a thousand percent is like Q, or vice versa. Um, I, I, you know, I, I texted you that there is a Kilgrave vibe to him, but it wasn't because he was a rapist. It was just the whole, you know, I'm controlling everything and I'm going to say things like we're meant for each other and you love right. me. You just don't know it yet. It wasn't, I wasn't trying to put more darkness over him, but just the way, the, the, the mischievous, amoral uh, way that he talked to her, like, you know, we're fated to be like, he's nihilistic, but believes in fate when it comes to those two. Right. That was the big thing with Kilgrave is like, Right. He was a total nihilist, but when it came to Jessica Jones, he believed in, in fate and destiny and so forth, and both are highly, highly deluded. But this was obviously a, a much more pleasant uh, <laughs> version. And they are both sociopathic in the clinical sense that they don't believe rules apply to them, that they both think because they have this power, they can do whatever they want. There is no restriction on them. Now, obviously, Mixie has to obey some rules, like if he says his own name backwards, he has to go back to the fifth dimension, which... The way that's all resolved at the end, that's classic Superman. That that's there's a Superman cartoon in the nineties where he mm. shows up that's just Superman tricking him into he like he shows up, he bugs Clark Kent, he's like, 
I hate you. It's like, oh, it's you, Mr. Keltipsuzem. And he goes, no, not Keltipsuzem. Ah, crap. And he teleports back or he shows up. And he's like, I'm going to mess with you. All right, I have to finish editing this story I wrote. And so Mixie edits it for him, but the only typos are the letters that spell his name backwards. It's like, mm-hmm. damn it. And he flashes back. So, you know, Supergirl tricking him into typing the kill code that's his name backwards that's classic comic book solution to mix it as patelic. Very um, clever, I thought. I think the writers yeah. are great. You and I, I actually, so. and I think they were having yeah. a lot of fun with this. So episode. much fun, and, and you and I actually have some of the same quotes. The Lubavitch rabbi thing was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the fact that he called her nasty woman. Now you yep. you speculated that they added that later because we don't know when this was filmed. Yeah, I, I don't know when this script was written. They definitely they don't. TV shows don't tend to produce every episode before the show begins. They do filming. Oh no, they're still assume, filming. Yeah, or, and I would or I know they, Shield is still filming. Sorry, they're still filming Shield episodes right now. I mean, Chloe right, Bennett. Photos tweets, of but, uh, Peter Gaddy out on state set. Those started coming out like three weeks ago. So this was definitely an episode that was yeah. shot later. So my hunch is it was written later too. So I, I cannot believe a show that has said anti-Trump things on a few occasions. I mean, when she meets the woman president, played by Linda Carter, Wonder Woman, she says, it's so cool to meet the first female president. I can't believe we almost elected that other guy. Mm -hmm. That joke isn't very funny anymore because we did elect the other guy. But clearly this show is on one side of this and is trying to have to say something about this particular issue. So I can't believe Nasty Woman just came out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, nasty woman. He says in like August or September. So I don't think. I think. And then it, it was, became a yeah. thing. It became a meme. So yeah. you know, it went all over Twitter and Facebook. So you know, the writers definitely knew about that. Oh yeah. I'm just saying. I think it happened before he was elected, and you know, it would have elected, still been yes, but yeah. post debate. I think oh, it was clearly. the second debate yeah. when he said no, that. This is not so. a coincidence. Yeah, it's not a coincidence. Also, um, they, there's a Magneto reference. I thought when he turns the guns against them, oh, and he goes, "100 percent." Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw this, I in, saw a movie. this in a movie. <laughs> yeah, and then as you point out, he's you know they say you want to get nuts, let's get nuts, which is a reference yep. to Lego Batman, reference on the original Batman movie, which is it, it is interesting that that Lego Batman and the C w is representing dc way better than any of their actual movies because they're having fun they're having fun comics are supposed to be fun i i just dc took this really dark turn in the mid-2000s starting with a plot called identity crisis which was about how a criminal found out the secret identity of the atom broke into his house raped i mean sexually assaulted his wife so they screwed with his memory so he'd forget but then messed him up so he was like an idiot for the rest of his life and then it turned out batman caught them doing it so they screwed with his memory and it was well written but it was extremely dark and it just set dc on down 10 years of intentionally dark storylines that have been increasingly frustrating Mm -hmm. and it obviously poisoned the direction the movies went as well and finally the WB through the CW mostly is trying to regain the lightheartedness that should be at the core of all of this stuff. Cause this is children's stuff. It is. I, I'm, you know, I don't need my comics to be so adult. All of them, you know, yeah. alias I mean, is an adult comic. Dark Knight returns. Frank Miller created the, the image of Batman as the kind of linebacker brick house build that Christopher Nolan would then take, 
at very much. And then that Zack Snyder would basically take so far it would go up its own ass. Um, so Frank Miller created a model of Batman that took Batman in the wrong direction and that the Lego Batman movie is making fun of. Mm-hmm. Um, the other the other line I liked, which is only referential to something I constantly say, is when she's when Supergirl says, "I'm not a damsel in distress." You know, I'm yep. constantly lamenting the damsel in distress thing. So I love that as well. Um, you know, Supergirl has some on the nose dialogue. It has. I wrote that in the the blog post I did for us on this. Um, but she's right, and this episode is a little bit about. Kara dealing with two men that she perceives as trying to manipulate her. Mixie obviously is, and she thinks Monel is, and I still think he is unintentionally. I, I, he's not as awful or as obvious about it as Mixie is, but I still think he is trying to manipulate her, or he's unintentionally trying to do so. That's interesting. I, I, I take the two extremes. He's either an out-and-out out good guy who is just looking out for her, even if he has some misguided stuff. But, but man, uh, look, uh, unlike James, he does have superpowers, so it's not that yes. irrational that he'd want to help her. Or he is just a bad guy that they're trying to make us fall fall for the way she's falling for. I, I don't think... I, 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 let's put it this way. I, I don't... And you've seen way more than me, but I, I I don't get the impression that he's like seriously manipulating her as a good guy, you know, as opposed to them manipulating us by making us think he's a good guy. And by the way, that was a really sexy ending. I couldn't believe it. That was sexier than anything I've seen in CW in terms of the chemist, the physical chemistry those two have. Um, yeah, I don't think Oliver uh, or or Grant. Uh, or I should say, uh, Stephen Amell or Grant Gustin has had that good chemistry with with any of their various love interests. I don't know if you disagree with that. And I think their romances have been portrayed a little bit differently than the way Kara's budding romance with Monel has been portrayed. I, I think Monel is a good guy, but he's fighting his own demons as kind of, you know, a Daxamite. You know, Jeremy Jordan, when asks him, what do you do when you, on dating on Daxam? He says, we don't really do that. We just sort of sleep around. And I miss that life because I miss not having to care about things. Um, now I don't think he fully believes that, but there's definitely this sense of he's left a world behind. And even if he admits it was kind of an empty way to live, it was, it's the foundation of who he is and he can't just give that up. You know, he's struggling with that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't want to treat Kara the way he treated women on Daxum, but that is sort of his, still his default behavioral pattern. Yeah. I'm just saying, in terms of just strict pheromones, the the two relationships on Supergirl are a lot sexier than the other ones I've seen. Agreed. Um, th- it, which is funny, because that's supposed to be Three. the family show. Three, really, because, you know, Wynn dates an alien in this one, and oh, yeah. she is a very sexy ass, you know, she's got yeah. black leather, and, yeah. you know, she beats the shit out of people. I mean, she is definitely yeah. portrayed as a very sexual character. Right, I'm just talking about the two relationships that have been building for a while, and where, sure. where the actors are, have great chemistry as well as the characters. Mm-hmm. Um and that's you know that's a, that's a credit to those women uh, for the most part. I think I continue to uh, think uh, or feel that um, I feel like no, I continue to feel that um, that I, I like watching um, uh, Melissa uh, 
Benoist, Benoist. the best of the uh, of the leads. You know, her face is constantly making different emotions, and yeah. you know, it, you can see her inward turmoil it, 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 with with Oliver and uh, and Barry. It's like a slow burn that you just have to assume that there's like inward conflict. Let's put it this way: there's a lot more tell than show in some of the other shows. This show's a very show don't tell, which is how you're supposed to do stuff. That's that's just my opinion. I probably agree with that. I mean, Oliver's character also keeps it all you know inside barry wears it all on his sleeve but to the point that it kind of overshadows everything else and Kara is that right balance of for one i think even as Kara is very confident i think she feels less sure of herself oh, yeah. than maybe oliver or i mean oliver feels unsure of himself but it's this false moral quandary am i doing any good it's this thing that you complain about a lot and yep. and rightfully so yeah uh, and even barry has seems to have more confidence in himself as a hero and as a person than Kara does so Kara mm-hmm. has more range because she feels less settled and she's more right. expressive because she's still figuring stuff out in yeah. a way that oliver and barry maybe are farther along that path yeah. um i guess like for me because the arrow is the one I've watched the most. When I think of his relationship to Laurel or his relationship with Felicity, I think of the many long, repetitive conversations they have talking about the relationship. You know how, like, right. when you're in a relationship, as soon as you start spending more time talking about the relationship than having the relationship, that it's going downhill. You know what I'm yep. saying? Mm-hmm. So I, that's how my relationship with Arrow is, ironically. But also, that's partially informed by the fact that it's so much character exposition about what I think and what I feel and what's going on. Whereas Super Supergirl, you just see it on her face, you know, right. and, and yeah. what makes her her attraction with Monel great is they they're saying it without saying it, which is always the best way to do romance. So I'm, I'm look, dude, I'm sold on Supergirl. I mean, it, the only the negative effect of Supergirl is that it's made me enjoy some of the other shows <laughs> less on the CW. Now maybe that's also because Arrow is getting weaker, and maybe this will be a good transition. Uh, we do you, you have a little bit more time. I'm going to leave it up to you. Um, I've, I've been chattier than I planned as usual. So <laughs> if you want to talk about the three other CW shows together in any order, which ones go ahead. Uh, but we should mention Arrow quickly because we started this podcast, you know, almost two months ago, uh, thinking that we were going to be talking Arrow every week, specifically because I really liked Arrow. And now I'm off the wagon. You haven't even seen it this past week. I know you're busy and you will see it and I'll catch up at some point. But I think we should at least mention to the Bizzlecast listeners that it's not an accident that we haven't been talking about Arrow. Yeah, it's just... It's been – it's only been okay. And the last episode – this episode's now a week old. And by the time our listeners – you're listening to this, it'll be almost two weeks old. But they did a, an episode recently that reminded me a lot of like how TV shows dealt with major themes in the 90s. You would have like tonight on a very special episode of whatever, 90210 or, or whatever. And then it would be about a thing. It would be about – racism or aids or guns or or whatever some yeah. whatever hot button political issue was going on at the time or drug use um mm-hmm. and then they would have this really kind of preachy corn corny uh speech head driven episode about this theme and it would kind of be a break from all the plot and stuff Arrow last week was tonight on a very special episode of Arrow, and then it's guns. And Mm -hmm. so it's all about the gun issue. A random guy, not a supervillain, 
takes a gun and shoots up the mayor's office and it sparks this long conversation about all the arguments for guns and all the arguments against guns and there's the vigilante who is for more private gun ownership there's the vigilante who is against it there's the cop who is for it the cop who's against it it all feels very contrived and ultimately it cops out on his promise because at the end they do propose a piece of legislation to help curb gun violence uh, and they get the pro-gun legislator to sign on to it, but they don't actually say what it is. So uh, to me, if you're going to actually say something about guns and not just say, here's all the different arguments, the right. end, you need to actually do some research and come up with some kind of legislation that you think might work. Um, I thought that was a, a lazy ending. I like that we see the origin story for Wild Dog, that the flashbacks are his instead of Oliver's. I thought that was actually really good. But the episode overall just – it felt like something I would have watched on TV 20 years ago. Um, and guns are a political issue that I have – one of the ones I have stronger opinions about. And, and I felt like this was wading into the shallow waters in a way that Supergirl, in contrast, will go on the deep end. Like it recognizes this culture war going on right now in terms of how women are talked about and treated in this society – and it's picked a side. It has picked a hardcore side. Um, and it will not be afraid of pissing people off by doubling down on it. Um, Arrow doesn't seem to want to take a stand. And that annoys me. Because if you're not going to take a stand, don't get into the conversation. Well, I not think. to mention, he's, by definition, Oliver is a mass murderer. <laughs> he just Well, yeah, there's that arrows. too. Um, <laughs> and that's not really talked about. I mean, he says, all we do is violence. Everything we are is violence. But again, it's just this sort of preachy – it's a guy reading a speech. It doesn't feel organic when he right. should have a lot to say about vigilantism, about gun, about weapons. It's, you know, He uses a bow and an arrow, but he's killed people with a gun before. So That's true. I don't know. Diggle's definitely killed people with guns. Diggle has. Renee still uses a gun, or I think he did at the start of the season. So yep. it, it is what it is. I'm one week back on Arrow – it's fine, but it doesn't feel noteworthy to me. Um, it's and just, so yeah, maybe they should have killed it after season five. I don't know. Yeah, I could I could make the argument they should have killed it after season three. Um, well, certainly if we knew season four was coming, I think I probably yeah. would have agreed with you. Um, yeah, well, just, you know, I, I felt like the League of Shadows was, was pretty great. And, and then... Oh, I mean, that was amazing. There were some so many yeah. good episodes in season three. I mean, and, and you know, that's a classic case of... And this is the problem with killing characters, whether it's the Expanse or Game of Thrones or Arrow, whatever, or just taking them away, which is that you knew in season three that you were going to have Nyssa and Ra's al Ghul, you know? And so right. you knew something interesting or cool or fun to watch was going to happen, you, you know, even when there's an occasional, you know, hiccup here or there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, season four of Arrow felt a lot like season four of Homeland, where you had the first three seasons kind of with one sort of long arc. I guess Arrow, it was somewhat separated, but I still feel like it was because of Malcolm Merlin. There was a thread through the first three seasons um, with with Arrow. Homeland was the same way, and then you're like, okay, now what do you do? You have the same right. characters and redo the show? Okay, fine. You know, give it a try. Um, you know, more than three seasons is really hard to do. Um, and just to tie in the Expanse, man, I, I believe you and I said when we were discussing a couple weeks ago, we were talking about you know the book to TV 
right uh, 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 translation or whatever transition and mm-hmm. uh, I think we agreed that they should sort of take their time with it yes. and, not try- and it was really refreshing I thought in one of the articles that I read I think maybe you got it where they admitted to do- making that a conscious decision of not trying to yep. shoehorn in the whole thing in season one and boy did it pay off um, and I'm yeah. loving the serialized nature of it. That's the other thing with CW. I know that there's stuff that carries over episode to episode, but it's not fully serialized. And I think that's just mm-hmm. something I've realized about myself is that I, I, I'm always going to respond more to a serialized show than, than a non-serialized show. And it's hard I to do on CW. Either. Yeah. No, I know you can. Yeah, and, that, and that's great. Um, uh, I also wanted to say uh, that... Um, it's not clear why Flash started dark and it's been getting, for the most part, progressively less dark since season one. Uh, because you, you, normally on TV, it's actually gone the opposite way. Most stations are airing darker and darker shows. Um, I mean, The Expanse is, is darker than Battlestar in some ways. Uh, I think it's hilarious how they bleep out their own F-bombs. It is, I love that. Uh, I, but I love that they say it. I mean, so I'm trying to remember if I, when I watch it on Amazon, I think they put the F-bombs back in. I can't remember. It, or maybe on the Blu-ray they will um i have no idea probably yeah. um, but they do it they do it like a like a hip-hop track with clean lyrics which is great it's you know it's it's pretty funny and especially with when uh when agdashlu says it because she always says the f-bomb with such force you know yeah. if it, it comes through no matter what oh yeah you know exactly what she's saying <laughs> yeah so um uh, I want you to talk about Legends for sure because you had some interesting stuff to say about that. But uh, just really quickly, man, I'm just kind of spitballing here. Um, it's interesting to compare the CW and sci-fi like right now, like take a step snapshot. Right. Um, now, I'm assuming some of this will be affected by the return of 12 Monkeys and whether that's any good or not in terms of your perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, do you, do you think they're on similar trajectories at this point? Or CW clearly has the advantage because they have more well-established shows that have generally been better and they just have those properties. And so they're on sort of safer footing, even if The Expanse is the best of all the shows between the two stations networks, which you might not agree on. I'm just saying, even if we say that that's the case, it seems like the CW still has the advantage. I mean, sure. Although I would also say that you know, is the expanse better than orphan black? I don't think so. So well, it's not, not like BBC America. Yeah. Right. But sci-fi is at a disadvantage because it is on sci-fi. Whereas the CW is, I think just more people watch it. Those mainstream low number channels in your cable package always, I think will have better viewing ratings yeah. than like a niche channel that not every cable package gets even, Um, Most do, but you know, you can, it's hard to get TV without having the CW. It's easier to get it without having sci-fi. Now, if it all changes to subscribe channel by channel or show by show, obviously that'll go out the window. But for now, I think the shows on a mainstream channel will always have an advantage there. The CW also has all kinds of shows that we don't talk about that aren't this. It has the superhero shows, but it also has sort of horror thriller shows like supernatural and then it has some critically acclaimed shows like jane the virgin and my crazy ex-girlfriend you know shows and riverdale which is sort of a a mix of it's a comic show it's based off archie but it's also you know it's got some twin peaks element to it i think there's a murder and it also has some element of 
a little more driven around female characters. And in that way, it's in the same conversation with Jane the Virgin and my crazy Mm -hmm. ex-girlfriend, which are two shows that have won like critics choice awards and gotten Emmy nominations and none of the superhero shows. I think the flash maybe got like best theme song or something like that. Hmm. Um, so the CW has a, a more varied slate of shows. And I think that also gives the channel a distinct advantage over sci-fi, which really almost all the shows are, are pretty similar. I mean, Killjoys is about people in space who are, you know, bounty hunters. Dark Matter is about people on a spaceship. Yeah. The Magicians is a little bit different. It's more people studying magic in Never Never Land, basically, you know, in a, a, a school in a different dimension, basically. But, yeah, some, some you know, TV critic called it 2017's Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and man, have they been using that line over and over again in their ads. <laughs> I think they'll go for whatever they can. I mean, so I I think the CW is still in a stronger place. I think the ratings numbers for the season will bear that out. Yeah. Um, You know, The Expanse might get great numbers, but the rest of those shows... I don't think so. I don't believe so, yeah. Yeah, my my final point is, and then you can continue with the CW, uh, is The Expanse, I think, is doing what Vikings did, where Mm -hmm. they have a decent audience, but they're spending so much money on it that they're losing money on the front end because they know that they're going to sell a shit ton of Blu-rays and DVDs because it's just that kind of show, you know, with a rabid fan base. And they are, in both cases, those episodes are super rewatchable for both character and action reasons. And it gives, you know, it it bestows benefits upon the station as a whole to have some, I mean, this hasn't happened in Expanse yet, but Vikings has been nominated for things before, especially the lead female character, Catherine Winnick, has been nominated for, like, Emmys and Golden Globes. She hasn't won, but she's been nominated. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if the, you know, I think if Thomas Jane had a full season, maybe he could get a nomination. Um, but uh, the point being, I think they're willing to lose a little money on the front end because, you know, the Amazon sales and then the Blu-ray sales. Like, I'm I'm borderline considering buying a, a, a season uh, one of The Expanse on, on Blu-ray, only because I know I would really want to buy season two and I can't have season two without season one. So, and get all the special features and stuff like that. It's the first time I can say that about a show in a while. So I think they're cool with, with you know, we're, the CW budget I think is more in uh, like the, the mid range. And, and I think that's, that's smart. Um, and they're still getting great effects out of it on CW. So maybe that'll be a good transition. If you want to talk about uh, legends. Sure. But I'll wrap this conversation yes. up real quick. I, I also think sci-fi has got to look at the show and think, okay, it makes this much if we got rid of it and replaced it with something else could it make more and there's a real question of do we have anything that would be better and my hunch is they don't some ratings numbers for you the season one premiere of the expanse remains the only episode to get more than a million viewers every other episode has been in the seven hundred thousand to five hundred thousand range but that's live watchers remember i didn't watch season mm, one until well after it was over no, I think these numbers are now have now been adjusted. F- Certainly, the season one numbers have since been adjusted for DVR and Live Plus Twenty Four and all that. I'm not talking about uh, DVR. I'm talking about purchasing the digital files, not at live or, or down the road. Yeah, or, or waiting until it comes on Amazon Prime, which is what I did. Right. Okay, but even then, I, I don't know that there's even if you double all of those numbers, so that really that just like proves my two- point. That just proves my point the that they're spending a ton of money. Million, so we're I know. talking about twice the ratings. I know, but that that proves my point. So if if Flash is getting five times the ratings, 
Expanse, I think, still has a bigger budget. I mean, it has fewer episodes, so even if we say the budgets are the same, you know, sci-fi wouldn't be doing it unless they thought they were going to be getting something out of it, you know? That I totally agree that, with. That, that's my bigger point. Yeah. yeah a smaller sure. audience with that budget just proves my point even further. I'm not sure. The thing I don't know is the why. Um, yeah. So we'll have to table that for, for later. So, um, all right, man. Why don't you uh, wind us down with a couple, one or two more shows if you want. Sure. So uh, The Flash and, and Legends of Tomorrow can actually be talked about simultaneously because I'm not interested in talking about the plots for either. If you watch the shows, you know what's going on. If not, you don't. But both of these shows are these episodes this past week really kind of almost throw a a gauntlet down for the audience, which is if you buy these worlds and these premises, you will like these episodes. But if you don't, you will probably be pretty turned off to them. The Flash episode is about going to Earth 2 because Gorilla Grodd has kidnapped one of the Harrison Wells, the Earth 2 Harrison Wells, and wants the Flash to kill another giant telepathic CGI gorilla named Solivar in Gorilla City, a city filled with giant CGI telepathic gorillas so that basically he can take control of that army and he doesn't tell Flash this, but use it to go to war. He manipulates Earth 2 Harrison Wells with his telepathy into speaking for him and so Ben Cavanaugh talks like a caveman. It ends with Grodd on a throne and there's these armored gorillas holding spears i this is so beyond comic booky that if you're not on board with all of this it's laughable i mean it's so freaking bizarre that you're either down with it or you're not and the show kind of is willing i think to excise the people who aren't done with it with an episode like this to go whole hog after the ones who really do like it mm-hmm. for me there aren't enough monkey bad guys, simian bad guys. I know gorillas aren't <laughs> technically monkeys. There haven't been a good one since Congo, which I, I still think is a fun movie. Um, good book. Lasers and monkeys, I'm down. Uh, <laughs> but the stuff where they meet a tr- an African tribe, that stuff's all a little weird. Anyway, so I'm down with having Grodd in there. I like that they have him in there. But this is so ridiculous that if you don't like it, you will really not – respond to this episode at all and legends is similar in that it's really going deep on legends of tomorrow was a very short-lived comic book series but they are drawing from this larger dc universe mythology and history and just pulling from bits and pieces of it all over they go to the year 3000 i really wish they had given us the legion of superheroes because that is set in the 30th century but they didn't Then they go to Camelot, like King Arthur's Camelot, and Nate, Citizen Steel, keeps saying, this shouldn't exist. The Middle Ages weren't like this, but there is a sword and a stone and a table, and it eventually gets revealed why legendary Camelot actually exists. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a comic, a graphic novel that that was spread out over a course of a year called Camelot 3000, where... The King Arthur and Merlin and all of them are reborn in the 30th century. So the episode is a deep reference to a not particularly well-known DC comic series. Certainly not one that younger comic book readers are likely to know about. I mean, I think it was the mm-hmm. early 90s or maybe even the 80s. Um, I only picked it up in pieces at comic book conventions. You know, Supergirl mentioned Starhaven, which is a Legion of Superheroes planet. 
um, you know, this this whole show, they've had Samurais and, and Al Capone and Elliot Ness. You know, if you're not down with all of this, it seems to me like the CW is willing to cut bait with you. And I don't know if that's a good choice or not. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that they're saying fuck it with Le- Legends of Tomorrow and just going wherever they want and doing whatever they want. I think yeah. it's liberating. The, yeah, I think so. But, you know, I responded, if anything, to that better than the Flash episode that was so comic booky that mm-hmm. it was almost it was a little can I, nonsensical. Can I so can I, can I ask you yeah, a, go ahead. A, thought, a thought experiment about all this? Absolutely. So, um, so Bizzlecast listeners, I don't know if I'll have time to really talk about it fully today, but yeah, as you've heard, I haven't been watching Shield, and Matt is really, it's really losing him to say the least. But I, <laughs> although night- this episode was amazing, right? I, that's so, got to be said at least once. It was an amazing episode. So, the night of the episode is Tuesday night, right? Right. So I, I follow um, Chloe Bennett and a couple other the cast members, Clark Gregg, mm-hmm. but mostly Chloe Bennett. She's a good Twitter follow, um, and she tends to. Uh, not self-promote excessively like she's mm-hmm. she's very politically conscious uh she's been very very vocal about especially women's and lgbt stuff uh bad stuff that's been going on um in the last few months and uh she's very into like solidarity and sh- she's kind of actually i think a great model for millennials you know i think there's a lot of millennial stars who i wouldn't consider like great role models i think she she is one from what i can tell i know this is going against what i just there said are a tw- lot of stars from every generation ago. that are not role models you think john wayne was a good guy john wayne was yeah. an asshole no i know that's what i'm saying i'm saying i think she is one that is but i, I could be wrong but um so uh the point being um so uh, I do follow her, but like all of a sudden there was like tons of Chloe Bennett retweets and people tagging Chloe Bennett about the episode, about how amazing it was. And other cast members were chiming in and I, I texted you, Matt, and I said, my Twitter's blowing up about this maybe being a good episode. And you, and you said, yeah, you, you were like 95% or something of it was, was pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, so before we talk about that, or if we talk about that, just a quick thought experiment. You, you often... Uh, preface episodes that you love about flash by saying things like if you don't read the comic book then xyz you know you might not like this um and i've said about legion that if i wasn't connected to x-men if there's a 50 50 chance i may or may not be watching it i'm not saying i shouldn't be watching it i would hope i would still watch legion even if it wasn't an x-men property but that made it 100 percent that i would watch it so my question is is there any um, possibility that if if you were a Marvel zombie and, and not a, you know a, a DC super fan that you would be able to stick with Shield more? Um, another way of putting this is if you weren't a DC fan, would you be crushing Arrow more, for example, in, in comparison to Shield? Because you 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 you're on record as saying they've just given up on Shield. I, I think I sense that with Arrow, but you don't seem to be as strong about that. Yeah, I, I maybe just look. Could it be that I'm biased? I, of course, a hundred percent. Although I will extol the Marvel movies, even the ones that aren't objectively that good. Like I've said, Doctor Strange, I really enjoyed, but I think it, on the balance, is probably a mediocre movie. You know, it's a a B, B minus, maybe even a C plus. Yep. I just really liked it. I love DC. I have crushed the DC EU for being. Yes. That's horrible true. for just getting everything wrong about their characters. That's um, true. so it, is it possible? Yes. 
but from my perspective, Arrow has not checked out to the degree that okay. this second arc of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. really seemed to be checked out. The first arc with Ghost Rider was cool, and it seemed like they were still trying. The LMD arc, the second one, really seemed to me to be running out the clock. And now this it ends with basically spoilers. I'm just going to get into spoilers. They go into this framework, this imaginary world that you know electronic world that radcliffe and the robot ada have been building to try to save their friends and in this world um well one hydra won the the war basically civil war went really differently hydra took over so um may is a hydra agent and the shield triskelion is a hydra base but otherwise it seems like everybody's life is pretty good Except mm-hmm. they brought back Ward, which n- nobody wanted to see Brett oh, Dalton really? anymore. Back? Yeah, yeah. Now this whole plot of going back to Hydra, of bringing back Ward, of probably yeah. bringing back some of the characters who've been killed off. Like I wouldn't be shocked if Victoria Hand comes back, hmm. or Deathlock comes yeah. back, or a uh, Deathlock shows up. Mm-hmm. All of that feels to me like callbacks to the first season as a way of reminding people of what the show once was before it ends. Mm-hmm. So I still think it's a sign of a show that is on its way out and will be probably finishing its last season um, in hmm. two months. Mm-hmm. But it was a really good episode. I, I don't know if I would have been, if I'd be so gung ho for CW, if I didn't love the DC source material, yeah. but it's a hard experiment to go through because I have loved DC since I was 12 and right. I'm, 34 now so it's kind of hard to undo 22 years of devotion that's true but you've never been a huge green arrow fan no i haven't yeah um so um, i guess my 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 only point is and i can't i'm not and i can't defend shield because i've been watching it and i can't defend anything you said it sounds like i would have the same criticisms i just again tend to blame the writers and showrunners in these situations whether it's arrow or shield you know i i i do not want to accuse the arrow actors of tuning out but the writers it's in it's unarguable inarguable that the writing on arrow is it's gone way down in my personal opinion and i'm wondering if the same things happened on shield you're you're about the actors taking accountability and that's totally fine i'm just giving you my perspective on 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 that there are definitely movies and tv shows where you can tell the actor is and the the colloquial expression is phoning it in that they're not trying now usually that is when the script is bad but that doesn't mean the actor gets a pass for not doing his or her job. You know, sure. Nick Cage is notorious for being able to take shitty scripts and make them enjoyable. The Rock is horrible. The script for The Rock is really not that good. But he is so over the top in his performance that it makes The Rock memorable, along with some other things. Connery, obviously. Ed Harris is not, in my opinion, believable bad guy, but whatever. Um you know, there are plenty of actors and actresses who can take bad or mediocre or average writing and elevate it. And if you choose not to do so, that's not, you know, you don't get a pass for not doing, for doing it that way. Um, you know, I, the prequel star Wars movies, yes, the script was awful, but that doesn't mean I can't also criticize Natalie Portman for looking completely checked out of the third movie in a way she wasn't even checked out of the second movie. 
Um, I, it's it's the pro- it's, the problem is it's it's like the uncertainty principle. It's like the only way to prove that an actor is either mailing it in or not good is for that to be the case clearly in a good movie. And the only way right. to tell if an actor is great in a bad movie is for the actor to be great in a bad movie. So I'm not saying Natalie Portman was good or bad. I'm just saying the rest of it was such a mess that I can't even make a proper judgment. So I'm not going to argue against somebody who says Natalie mailed it in. I'm not going to argue against you thinking that some of the S.H.I.E.L.D. people are mailing it in. I know that the, the studio is not behind it and the writing isn't good. So even if I were watching S.H.I.E.L.D., I couldn't defend it or attack it one way or the other. There's not enough evidence and there's too much other shit in the way 100 percent agree with all of that i just yeah. you know as much as i'm a fan of a- actors and whatnot uh, probably if you had to give me ask me one profession in hollywood I, I i like the most it's obviously the actors and the actresses more than mm-hmm. directors or writers or or tech guys or whatever but they are part of the production and if the whole production fails that's their fault too. They don't get a pass because they are I, I, for whatever reason, because you like them, because you feel like you know them better than, you know, whoever wrote the script, they helped produce this thing and they therefore yeah. have to shoulder some of the responsibility for its failure. Just like if it succeeds, they get a share of the credit. You know, if a movie is good, it can't, it's not, you know, it's not because the script is good. It's because the script is good and the performances are good. You know, except in that scenario you describe where the acting is bad and it's still good. But those are the exceptions, not the rule. Yeah. Yeah. I guess for me, you know, I want to be able to see movies or TV shows as baseball teams. Right. Um, but it's impossible because, you know, Ryan Howard can hit 50 home runs and the Phillies still be terrible. You know, there's statistical proof that he had a good season and the team still sucked. Whereas TV shows are more like basketball teams or even football teams. Whereas a few people screwing up and a few people being good is sort of is hard to tell because of how interlocked the whole situation. Yeah, and generally everything has to be pretty seamless to succeed. You know, football and hockey, even basketball. You know, one guy does the scoring, but if you ever watch basketball, the amount of off the ball movement setting screens, giving open looks in other parts of the court. All of that stuff also has a huge role in whoever winds up taking the final shot. Yeah. And, you know, has any athlete been equally hugely praised and uh, criticized as LeBron James? You know what I mean? I mean, it's like one day he's the worst guy ever. The next day he's the most transcendent basketball player ever. Um, well, yeah, but again, I, I I do believe that the football team is is more, yeah, that you, even with the quarterbacks, a star, a super superstar basketball player is, uh, um, I think more um in the in the limelight. Um, Probably, I mean, basketball is still more individualistic than. I mean, the football. Patriots were still good when Brady wasn't playing. So that's true. Yeah. They went three yeah. and one without him with Garoppolo yeah. start uh, and uh, Brissett. Um, Every so, time LeBron moves teams, the other team loses 30 to 50 wins. <laughs> that's true. And then the team he goes to wins a championship, wins championship or gets the championship. Yeah. So you know, anyways, so. okay. That was a good philosophical discussion. So you want to take us out on the final thought here? Cause you got to go and I got to go. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I've said pretty much everything I have to say. Yeah. I, I do think agents of shield. It was an amazing episode. It was taught. It was suspenseful as hell. It was very well acted when it wasn't about relationship stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to see how it comes out, but it's also off the air until April. So clearly this last arc is going to be, take us right through to the season finale. Mm -hmm. And 
even with this episode, I don't think I'm going to miss it. Like, I'm not thinking about right now, oh, what's going to happen with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I'm just thinking I'll watch it when it comes back on. And if it's good, cool. If it's not good, which is, you know, they're one for two on story arcs so far, uh, then fine. It's the shittiest season and hopefully it's the last you know, mm-hmm. I want to know what happens next on Legion. I want to know what happens next on Expanse. I want to see this goofy-ass resolution to this giant guerrilla war that we're going to get next week on The Flash. I want to see what crazy weird place Legends goes to, I think, in two weeks. Um, it's mm-hmm. off the air for a little while. So, mm-hmm. so you know, um, yeah, go ahead. even Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., for as good as it was, didn't really re-ground me in the show you know it's not part of the stuff that i really look forward to mm-hmm. yep so we're getting into that mid uh, late winter early spring thing mm-hmm. where networks are trying out a lot of stuff you know the summer used to be the time to kill shows now actually there are some great or at least highly liked or or watch shows like orphan black and and game of thrones that are specifically running over summers for certain reasons and then there is some other trash out there Mm -hmm. um other shows that are trash um a lot of those sort of these dumb movie properties that they're turning into even dumber tv shows are starting but there is there are a lot of release now I, the, the chance of me getting to the Americans by uh, a week from Tuesday, I, I, mm-hmm. I you know, we're going to talk about it no matter what. So I'll hope to watch at least some of that. That's March 7th. Um, and then uh, the the other major big one is obviously Iron Fist, which is this Friday, March 17th. 17th. So that would be two weeks from this coming Friday. So about yep. three weeks from today. Um, into the Badlands, and then the one that um, oh no, that's April. I was gonna say the one we're most excited about is American Gods, but and that did get a date by the way, Sunday, April thirtieth, right. nine p.m. Sweet. Um, so uh, there there are some definitely some new shows um, coming up. Uh, I, I'm curious to see the Mystery Science Theater reboot on Netflix. What that's going to be like? Uh, my friends were sort of more into that than I was growing up, but Same. I just. Yeah, so I, 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 you know, but but your 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 guys at Fargo are coming back April nineteenth, so that's something else to look forward to. Heck yeah! So all right, thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Uh, as always, Bizzlecast, feel free to send us uh, feedback. Um, th- everything's been going really well so far. Um, and uh, oh, I had one last question for you, and then we'll close. Yeah. Um, and this goes back to Supergirl. So David Harewood plays like three characters. David Harewood plays John Jones and Hank Henshaw, the original Hank Henshaw, not the one that he's pretending to be, who is now the cyborg Superman. Who in the comics, Hank Henshaw does become the cyborg Superman. So, so who was, he's a who white was, guy in the comics, uh, but... Who was the guy with the half mask that was working with the Luthers? That's cyborg Superman. It, it's not a great effect. It, it looks like a mask, not like he has metal skin But why is underneath. it him? Why does it have to be David Harewood? I'm confused. Because when John Jones crash lands to Earth, he kills uh, David Harewood. He kills the original John Jones. Or maybe it's either him or it's uh, Jeremiah Danvers kills the original Hank Henshaw, who is about to kill John Jones. So to disguise himself, he just turned John Jones to disguise himself, turns himself into Hank Henshaw. And uh, the other thing that I, I sort of teased, but I was thinking about again in this episode, is I, I can understand why Supergirl wants to protect us because she was adopted and, and she sort of adopted us. Um, but it's a little weird 
again, because of the tone, it's not disturbing, but it could be disturbing that the head of the most powerful security agency is an alien. Um, I assume they explain early on in the show why this Martian guy cares so much about protecting Earth. Yeah, his story, and I think the reason why he can relate to Supergirl is he also is a survivor of a genocidal act. You know, the white Martians uh, wiped out I think all the green Martians except him. I mean, they uh-huh. killed the green Martians by the millions, including uh-huh. John's kids. So he is on earth. He doesn't want to go back to Mars cause he'll be exterminated. And he wants to prevent these kind of actions from happening again. Just like Supergirl doesn't want to see another planet destroyed after Krypton was destroyed, which is Superman's motivation too. Yep. I mean, he says that repeatedly. It's the, survivor's guilt mm-hmm. metaphor you know uh, specifically i think of american jewry surviving the ho- living on after the holocaust of we have to prevent this from happening again so we're going to create all these superheroes who prevent their own tragedies from happening again mm-hmm. batman parents are murdered in a, in a base you know random act of crime so now he fights and tries to do everything he can to stop random acts of crime mm-hmm. superman's planet was destroyed so now he is going to do everything he can to prevent the destruction of this planet from mm-hmm. whatever. And I you think know. maybe, and this will be my closing thought, we'll close out here. I, I think part of why I, I like the Supergirl and this whole Superman mythology is that it is closer thematically to the X-Men than the um, other superheroes. Because they're definitely different. They're born different. Yes. And they want to help the people that want to kill them or, or would want to kill them if they knew the truth, right? If they knew a Martian was running, you know, the equivalent of the super CIA or whatever, you know, there'd probably be a manhunt out immediately to track him down and kill him or whatever, you know. Which happens still, in season yeah. one. Yeah. So, um, so in that sense, it's kind of more similar to the political themes of X-Men. And so I really enjoy that. So cool, man. Uh, another fun episode. Thank you so much. Um, I, of course, am mostly looking forward to the expanse next week, but I am getting a feeling like Legion is about to turn a corner in terms of p- picking up the pace, um, w- which would be welcome, e- even though I, I'm, I'm still enjoying the show, even if I'm still disoriented by it. Uh, what, what either show or, or just th- or specific thing are you most looking forward to, uh, next week? Legion. I uh, no, Legion. not Legion. Yeah. Well, Legion definitely, but I yeah. also want to know where the expanse is going. I, yeah. I really want to know where the expanse is going. Yeah. It's getting it's getting crazy. Um thanks, Maddie G. Thank you, streamers and bizzlecasters, and we are out. All right, buddy. Cool.